What is happening, team? Coach Ishak with Hawkfit Coaching and Legion Athletics, and your host for today's episode of Anabolic Radio. Do I have quite a treat for you all today? I'm joined today by Dr. Grant Tinsley from Texas Tech University. Specifically at the university, what he really focuses on is being the director of the Energy Balance and Body Composition Lab, and um, he has a ton of uh, bright students under him that are also, you know, conducting research. And um, for the audience that are not familiar with what you do, why don't we go ahead and give them uh, some insight and an intro? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here chatting with you today. I appreciate all you've done for me, mostly in the realm of anime recommendations in the past. Not sure if you keep that separate, but I'm going to go ahead and bring that up first thing. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. As you mentioned, I'm an associate professor at Texas Tech University, and I do direct uh, my lab, which is the Energy Balance and Body Composition Laboratory. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a great team of students. We have 11 students in the lab right now, uh, four PhD students, three master's students, and the rest are undergraduate. So uh, yeah, we conduct a lot of research. We usually have you know four plus studies going at a time. Uh, this semester, relatively speaking, is calm because we're only running four studies. Sort of last semester, I think we might have had six going at a time, which was um, Maybe a little too much, but but we made it through. So we can conduct a lot of research on body composition assessment methods, um, different nutrient timing strategies, particularly intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. Uh, and then we do quite a few sports nutrition trials as well. Uh, in addition to research, I teach some classes there. So for example, this semester, I'm teaching a graduate level class that's specifically on dietary supplements uh, in sports nutrition. And I teach, uh, I'm developing a new class on body composition assessment and I also teach our undergraduate sports nutrition class every year. So, uh, so that's kind of an overview of what I do. Um, yeah, that's the gist of it. Definitely setting the standard, man. Creating new classes, huh? It's going to make an impact for the future generation. So from me to you, I want to thank you for all the work that you guys do over there because it really helps coaches like me who are up to date with, you know, what's demonstrated in the literature get their clients better results and, you know, just having a more structured way for implementing a lot of these strategies, understanding the nuances of them. And, um, you know, for those of you listening, you all are pretty familiar that what I focus on in this podcast is basically just discussing these nuances and uh, adding context to a lot of what gets said on social media, which, you know, oftentimes isn't necessarily the most accurate thing, especially when it's coming from people who don't treat this like an actual profession. So in this episode to start, we're actually going to talk about standardizing body composition assessments. So Grant, I'm sure you could agree with me that changes in body weight are far more complex than, uh, or changes in body composition are far more complex than simple changes in scale weight. And oftentimes, whenever someone starts a nutrition or a training program, you know, they think they're instantly going to see changes, not only with their body composition, but with their scale. And the biggest mistake many people unfortunately make is not standardizing metrics for tracking their progress. So for some of our anabolic listeners, can you give them some insight as to metrics for tracking progress and standardizing body composition assessments? Yeah, so I'll start with the standardization because that's uh, they're fairly similar principles across most methods, um, but then I'll get a little bit into the methods because we do see a disconnect um, sometimes between what people have access to and what's recommended. Um, sometimes it's easy for researchers like myself to be like, oh yeah, you know, 
go get a DEXA done or go do this or that when that may not be accessible. So uh, I'll talk about a recent study we've performed that we're in the process of analyzing that we're hoping to fill some of those gaps between uh, what people actually have access to uh, and methods that can still provide them with some, some valuable information. So in terms of standardization, I think um, some people have a good awareness of this. I see uh, some of these principles recommended, but I'd still say the general population and many people who might have access to um, something like a bioimpedance scale, uh, they may still not have an appreciation that essentially you want to standardize everything you can. So typically, the more of your day you live, the more things you do or the more things that happen to you that could potentially mess up assessments. So for almost all methods, the preferred time to assess your body composition would be very first thing in the morning um, after avoiding your urinary bladder. Um, if you're, we'll just get get right into the, <laughs> the, the dirty details. If you're someone that has a bowel movement in the morning regularly, standardizing the assessment to ideally after that bowel movement, um, if not being aware that, you know, when you have movements like that during the day could affect things acutely like um, body mass, for example. Um, but standardizing, if you, if you do that, if you go after an overnight fast, first thing in the morning, you haven't had anything to drink, you haven't had anything to eat, you've done nothing, um, you're wearing, say this is a, a, a device that has a scale component, like again, a bioimpedance scale, just, just for an example. Um, standardizing clothing, either nude body mass or, or just underwear, something like that. Um, those little things definitely add up. And I think there's there's some awareness of it, but just sticking to that and being sure that you're not comparing, you know, your rigorously standardized assessments with that one time you happened to jump on the scale in the afternoon and you're really happy because you were showing single digit body fat and uh, just really sticking to the standardization uh, and only interpreting those data. Um, that's really the gist of it. We've, we've done some studies looking at uh, either in controlled settings, like how much does it influence these assessments if we give someone one bottle of water, like a controlled amount of water, uh, or in less controlled settings where we assess people in the morning, all everything standardized, and then we say, okay, just go live your life, do whatever you want, come back this afternoon, and we assess them again. Um, and it's kind of amazing the, the magnitude of changes you'll see. There'll be changes that you would hope to see after several months of a program that are completely artificially showing up within the course of one day just because of a lack of standardization of eating, drinking, and exercise. Um, but again, you go back to the big picture. You can't go wrong with after an overnight fast, um, voiding, minimal clothing, everything standardized. Um, a caveat is even then you could have an issue. So say you're taking a waist circumference uh, measurement with a flexible tape measure. This would be a nice metric to track for people who don't have access to tons of equipment. Um, even then, even if it's an overnight fast, you could definitely have difference in, say, abdominal distension from the prior day's um, intake whether you you know consume foods that cause you to be more bloated, um, less bloated, things like that that could certainly affect uh, some of those measurements, even with standardization. So it doesn't guarantee you'll have perfect data, but it at least pushes things in that direction. Mm. And what gets tracked get ma gets managed, and data is power. So even if you know scale weight jumps up a couple pounds, it's important to be objective of the fact that you know. Uh, changes in scale weight are influenced by a variety of variables, like Grant just said, whether you had a bowel movement or not, whether you're stressed, uh, you know, hydration status, food volume the previous day, how active you were. So it's important, and for, for women, if you're on your menstrual cycle, so it's important to be objective of these things and not get emotionally attached to sometimes what happens on the scale or what shows up on the scale. And, uh, 
Grant, so we know how important standardizing, you know, measurements and obtaining data is, but with regards to bioelectrical impedance, you know, why is that not necessarily the most accurate means for obtaining data? And we could go ahead and dive into three compartment and four compartment models for tracking changes in body composition. Yeah. So first off, I'll state that I'm not actually as down on bioimpedance as everyone is, but there's a major caveat. And this, this category has a broader range of quality than almost any other type of assessment. So you can, you can go to Walmart, you can go to Amazon, because I mean, who shops in person anymore? We're all just sitting at our computers ordering things. You can go to Amazon, buy a body fat scale for $20 or $30.00. Or you can go to a medical device manufacturer and buy a bioimpedance scale for like $15,000. Um, so th there's an enormous range um, here. So some people demonize bioimpedance based on some of these consumer devices, which is understandable because it's what they have access to. Uh, but it is worth noting there are some research grade bioimpedance techniques that are actually really well validated and provide some useful information. Um, so kind of as a side tangent, but I will get to your question. Uh, we recently have a study that was led by one of my doctoral students, Madeline Siedler, uh, who previously studied with, with Bill Campbell at University of South Florida. Uh, and she, she had this good idea of kind of trying to fill this gap between, you know, what consumers are using and what we have access to in the lab. So we essentially went to Amazon and bought uh, 15 or 20 of the top selling bioimpedance scales, brought them into our lab. So we just had these littered all over the lab. It wasn't organized. It wasn't littered. But sort of felt like they were littered all over the lab. Mouse traps. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and we would bring people in, test them with all these consumer grade bioimpedance scales that, that many people use, many people have access to. And then we'd also test them with some of our best methods, which I'll, I'll mention in a minute. You, you mentioned the four compartment model and we'll dive into that. Uh, so we finished data collection on that back in December and we've started analyzing the data. We'll present some of the preliminary results later this month at a, a regional conference here in Texas. Uh, and then we'll move the entire thing towards publication. But this is something we're really excited about because it will show, it'll answer a number of questions. One, is there any usefulness at all to these consumer grade scales? Uh, not only at one point in time, but for tracking changes. Because in this study, we actually had um, everyone come in for one visit and then people were able to opt in to a second visit conducted several months later. Um, where we would repeat all the assessments. So based on that, we were able to quantify with our, our really strong methods how much of a body composition change actually occurred. And we would also see whether or not that was detected by these consumer grade scales. Um, so we haven't gotten into the analysis for that longitudinal component yet, uh, but we will here this spring. And we, we hope to bring that to, to publication and share it with, with the world as soon as possible. Um, but we think this will have a really good impact on contextualizing those results. And we plan to make it really practical in terms of our discussion saying, you know, an error rate of 5% for this device means this. If you receive this value, this is how you should interpret it. This is how large of a change you should see with this device before you're confident that a real change has occurred. Um, so that's kind of where we're going. We're trying to yeah, really kind of bridge the gap between, um, you know, evidence-based practitioners like yourself and then some of the procedures we use in research. Uh, so went off on a nice nice tangent there. Uh, on, on some of these cheaper scales that we don't expect to perform very well, there are a number of things involved. Um, some would be the actual uh, quality of the physical components. Many of these scales are just foot-to-foot -foot devices. So a current is being passed in to a foot and received in a foot. And you're really, you're completing a circuit through the lower body, but you're really not seeing much of the upper body. 
for biomimpedance in general, the trunk is really difficult to assess because uh, you have this very large diameter, uh, which means there's very low resistance to electrical, electrical flow. Uh, so you have this whole region that represents quite a bit of our body mass, but we really can't accurately capture. Uh, so from our preliminary analysis, we're already seeing that some of the devices with upper body and lower uh, body electrodes are performing a little bit better. Uh, and there are some of those available now that are relatively affordable that have kind of a pull-out little hand electrode set to complement the, the foot electrodes. Um, so there are those physical factors. Uh, there's also the fact that most of these are kind of a black box. You get this device, you step on it, it spits out a number, but the companies are not sharing what equation they're using um, to get your body composition. Oftentimes they're not sharing the raw data because um, what, what they're actually receiving, so again, electrical currents passed into the body and received, what's actually being quantified is kind of the resistance to electrical flow or the overall impedance to that current. Um, so that's what's actually being measured. That's being put into a series of equations to predict something like body fat percentage. So unfortunately, there's kind of a lack of transparency. Uh, and many, many devices have just kind of broad equations. It, well, we don't know where they come from. But what I think is many of these devices have these broad equations that they might be well validated in the general population. But especially if we're talking about physique minded people and athletes, the equations may be way off base. Um, so we'll see if the data flushes out the way we expect. Uh, we did see some separation across devices. So up to uh, one device we're kind of optimistic about from preliminary data is one that InBody has. And uh, InBody traditionally is a company that's, that's viewed pretty favorably in kind of the research grade bioimpedance. But they have a new scale, the InBody H2ON, um, that I believe is a couple hundred dollars. I think it was around 200 or $250 when we conducted the study. Um, that seems to be performing so far from the preliminary look better than most of the consumer grade devices and closer to the level of the research grade devices. Um, but it's at a price point where say, you know, a coach or someone like that might want to invest in it. So uh, we look forward to sharing those data when they're, they're fully available. Um, I've wandered pretty far right now. So if you want to get me back on track, do you want me to transition to 3C and 4C models or do you have any follow-up bioimpedance questions for me? No, that was uh, that was a, uh... That was a great summary and it opened my mind up to some stuff. So even with bioelectrical impedance, even three and four compartment models, you know, there are going to be nuances that influence changes in fat free mass and fat mass, um, such as if you'd like to carry on from there, such as like, for example, myself, even with some of my clients who I have go get DEXAs, we have to standardize a couple days before the measurement because changes in glycogen will influence the results. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there, and then we can carry on into three and four compartment models. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and, and good job getting your money's worth, your client's money worth for those DEXA scans. Uh, yeah, we've done studies on that, um, a couple different ones, and other groups have as well. Um, other groups have even done invasive studies where they're doing muscle biopsies and actually quantifying the glycogen. But um, certainly changes in glycogen content and fluid content uh, generally will show up as changes in lean mass. So if you had someone who's relatively glycogen depleted, um, you could certainly have a lower lean mass estimate than you'd have if they carb loaded. Uh, and again, there have been several studies, including our own, they've shown that increased food consumption, say a non-standardized assessment, or even some data showing after an overnight fast, just kind of habitual glycogen level directly impacting uh, DEXA and other uh, lean mass assessments. Um, so mm -hmm. no, that's a great point. And 
So for both bioimpedance and DEXA, this will kind of actually bridge us right into the 3C and, and 4C conversation. Almost every method someone has access to, um, so skin folds, bioimpedance, uh, a little bit debated, but even DEXA, FOD pod, hydrostatic weighing, virtually every method people are familiar with uh, uses what's called a two compartment model. So this separates all of body mass into fat mass and fat-free mass. And oftentimes people are like, oh, fat-free mass, that's muscle, that's what we care about. Um, and it kind of is, but it's kind of not. So really what fat-free mass and fat mass are, are, we're talking about molecules. So all the molecules of fat, wherever they occur. So this could be the fat that's in adipose tissue. So most of adipose tissue is fat, but not all of it. There is some protein in water. Uh, this could also be the fat stored as intramuscular triglycerides. So something that actually is part of skeletal muscle, but is part of fat mass when we're doing the molecules uh, or fat anywhere else in the body. Similarly, fat-free mass, it's those non-fat molecules wherever they are. So most of skeletal muscle is non-fat. So like most of those molecules would be considered fat-free mass. Um, but again, you would have some protein and water component of adipose tissue that would also get pulled in fat-free mass. So fat mass and fat-free mass, it's just the molecules wherever they occur. What people tend to equate them to is like adipose tissue and skeletal muscle mass. Uh, those are actual tissues where if we were dissecting cadavers, which is something I did for a year and I just love, I love cadavers, uh, probably makes me a little off, but whatever. Uh, it's something you could anatomically isolate. So I could cut off your skeletal muscle. I could hold it and say like, this is the skeletal muscle. For fat-free mass, we'd have to sort of chemically um, process the whole body and separate it out and be like, okay, here, all this sludge right here is your fat-free mass and all this sludge over here is your fat mass. Um, so that's kind of an initial point. All these methods that are just giving you fat mass, fat-free mass, and, and the corresponding body fat percentage, they're really based on a two-compartment model. Um, so the main issue with this is if you think about everything that's not fat in your body, fat-free mass, there's a lot there. So most of it is water. We have um, quite a bit of protein. We have mineral. And then we also have things like glycogen. Uh, and not only we have bone mineral and then kind of soft tissue mineral. So the minerals dissolved in body fluids. Uh, so there are lots of different components there. So this is kind of a known shortcoming of two compartment models. Uh, and the reason why is because you and I uh, and say you and I together as people who lift may differ in our fat-free mass characteristics than say people who don't lift. We may have different proportions of protein, mineral, and so on. Um, so built into any two compartment model body fat equation or body composition equation is are quite a few assumptions about how much of each of these components um, everyone has. So kind of blanket, uh, we're applying blanket values to everyone rather than treating people individually. Um, so an advantage of moving past two compartment models to say three or four compartment models, um, which as you're, you know, I'm sure very educated, sharp and witty listeners have guessed is where we're just separating the body into more compartments instead of just two. Now we have three or four. Um, an advantage of that is we don't have to assume as many things. So typically for a three compartment model, if we're thinking about uh, what would be the most important factor we could take into consideration, uh, water is typically viewed as that most important component because we have more water in our body than anything else. So a three compartment model would often be like fat mass, water mass and everything else. So that everything else compartment got a lot smaller when we pulled out water. So it's sort of all the fat-free mass that's left after we've taken out water. So we'd still have protein and mineral and a few things, but it's getting smaller. If we went up to another four compartment model, it's like we pull out something else, um, often bone mineral, and now we have an even smaller everything else category. We have our protein and mineral, um, so uh, soft tissue mineral. 
so anyways, the, the more components we separate the body into, the more accurately we can describe the body. Um, a major caveat is we're, we've kind of now just bridged into um, research equipment realm where your listeners might be like, okay, this is great, but I have a flexible tape measure and calipers and that bioimpedance scale. So we've kind of ventured past what most people have access to. Though I'll, I'll say as a quick side note, our lab has looked into field-based three compartment models. So it still has a little more higher equipment costs than say like calipers and skin folds, but using a, a relatively inexpensive portable ultrasound probe and a relatively inexpensive bioimpedance device, we were able to build a, a field-based three compartment model that someone could um, use out, yeah, out in the field, whether it's athletics or clients or whatever. So there, there are ways you can incorporate these principles, say for, um, again, evidence-based coach who, who's willing to invest some in testing. Uh, in fact, Cody Hahn, um, I know has, has used this model with his clients and he obviously comes from a very strong research background and is, is doing evidence-based stuff, but um, he and I have discussed this model some and he's used some of this field-based three compartment model. Okay, where do you wanna go from there? Sorry, I, 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 I'm going into the weeds on several several fields today. No, no, I love it. Great summary, great summary. So the most important thing across the board, guys, is there is going to be a degree of variability, plus or minus some. And uh, the most important thing is you standardize your metrics for tracking, whether that be your scale weight first thing in the morning after you use the bathroom before you eat or drink anything, whether that be your skin uh, skin fold, you know, have a certain time of the week where you are consistent with getting that data and then just measure your trends over time. You know, it doesn't have to be rocket science. And um, especially for physique competitors, I want you to listen, just scroll back and listen to all the variables that Grant said influences these measurements, right? So you have to remember at the end of the day, you know, it's not a dieting competition. The judges don't care about what body fat percent you are on stage. So it's more so important to really just be focused on also what you're seeing in the mirror and if that is remaining consistent with your intended goal. Um, so that was a great summary, Grant. And um, some of the other research that's come out of your lab is you guys recently had an overfeeding study. So uh, why don't you go ahead and dive into the methods and the group and we'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, the overfeeding study, uh, this was this was fun because prior to this, we conducted uh, some of the types of research I mentioned, including fasting. So we went from starving people to force feeding people, which it turns out it's a lot more fun to force people to eat than to um, deprive them. So yeah, for an overfeeding study, it was kind of an ambitious project. We we set up the data collection so we could answer quite a few um, answer quite a few questions pertaining to overfeeding, weight gain. Uh, we had a lot of the body composition methods integrated into this as well. So in terms of what we actually did, we recruited um, resistance trained uh, males in this case because there have been data showing a, on average a desire to gain body mass in college age males and a desire to lose body mass in college age females. So uh, we were prescribing a, a rate of body mass gain of at least a pound a week and we anticipated um, not being able to recruit uh, enough females interested in that, that aggressive of a weight gain protocol. Um, though I'd be interesting, interested to follow up on this in, in the future on the, uh, with the female population. But uh, for this particular stud study, resistance-trained males who are willing to uh, attempt to gain at least a pound a week, um, we put them on a uh, six-week supervised resistance training program. Um, we, we essentially provided, we told them to maintain their normal weight maintenance diet 
And then just as a simple way of administering surplus, we used a mass gainer. Um, so we started out with kind of a half dose of the mass gainer and we saw um, if that would elicit the desired body mass gain. If not, we upped the dosage and provided dietary advice. Um, the nice thing on this is that we grounded everything in kind of the objective body mass gain because uh, I think there's a general awareness of this. And some physique athletes might be partially exempt from this who are very meticulous on tracking weight dietary records and all that. But in general, even amongst relatively um, nutrition-informed individuals, dietary records are still very challenging to get good data from. So we just define this objectively. We said we're objectively defining if you're if you're gaining a pound of body mass per week, then based on energy balance principles, we're saying by definition, you're compliant with this surplus we're trying to administer. Uh, and if you're not, by definition, you're not compliant. Even if that's the fact that you're you know fidgeting more, you're burning off more of these calories, you have some of these adaptive responses, um, you're not compliant. So we're going to increase the calories and try to get you compliant. Um, so that was one, I guess, kind of methodological item that I feel like was a strength because it was allowed, it allowed us, we were essentially weighing people every time they came into the lab um, to, to just ensure. So like three times a week to ensure they were, they were meeting the, the weight gain. And we look at their average gain across the week, which actually bridging back to our last topic is not a bad way to go. We're taking multiple assessments and averaging them or even assessments on back-to-back -back days and just seeing how much do they vary day to day when you didn't have a real change that was detectable in that amount of time. Um, but back to the overfeeding study, um, yeah, we, we push these participants. Uh, we have great trainers. I love doing supervised studies because I'll be sitting in my office working on the computer and I hear my students and trainers like screaming at people down the hall. And, um, I'm, you know, we're very confident in our supervised training studies that we've administered a sufficient exercise stimulus. Whereas, you know, if it's not supervised and you hand someone a workout program and they're across campus of the rec, you, you really don't know what, what effort or compliance you're getting. Um, so major outcomes here, one of the, the primary, um, goals was to see if we could predict the composition of body mass gain. So kind of predict who would have more favorable body mass gain responses with um, kind of a focus on the rate of mass gain. So we kind of set a minimum amount of mass gain because we wanted everyone to gain mass. Um, but we expected that, you know, some people would exceed that um, and someone fall beneath that. Uh, we quantified all kinds of variables related to dietary intake. So even though we were basing the surplus just on if they met body mass goals, we used um, some validated dietary intake, kind of automated recall methods. We looked at um, physical activity to accelerometry. We looked at like the resistance training load, body composition changes, metabolism changes, all these things. We were essentially trying to predict favorable body composition outcomes, which turns out is really difficult. We worked with a, a great statistician on this, used ultra complex stats methods, all this, and essentially Dude, decided setting we, the standard, man, crazy, crazy, well, crazy above and beyond, you know, it's what should be done across all literature. Sorry to interrupt, but no, you're good. Uh, no, I appreciate that. In the end, we probably would have needed like hundreds of people doing this to, to adequately answer the question. So, and we, we published this, we very much, we, we were transparent that this was a preliminary study, but ultimately we, we could not reliably predict who would have better and worse body comp outcomes based on all these apparently relevant input factors on the nutrition side, training side, and so on. Um, with that said, uh, with quite a bit of variability around the number, a body mass gain of about 0.55% per week corresponded with all body mass gained as fat-free mass. Uh, and then faster rates than that on average corresponded to some gain of fat mass and fat-free uh, and then at slower weight gains, we actually had a number of people recomping re where they were gaining fat-free mass and losing um, fat mass. So that was one interesting outcome. Uh, 
another aspect, this is actually one of the data collections, all that standardization work was integrated into because instead of just assessing body composition at baseline at the end, we brought people in twice at baseline and twice at the end. So we bring people in after an overnight fast, everything standardized, best practices. We'd assess them with essentially every device we had in our lab. Then we'd say, okay, just go live your day and come back in like seven hours in the afternoon. They would come back, we'd assess them again. So some of them had exercised, they'd been eating, they'd been going to and from class. It was kind of representative of people who just walk in for an afternoon body composition assessment, um, which I've, I've seen does happen in, in D1 athletics in all kinds of contexts. Um, you know, at the supplement store where they have a in-body bioimpedance scale standing there, you can jump on. Um, so we did that both at baseline and after the study. So we were able to see how different the body composition changes from the six-week program were. Um, if we standardized both assessments, that was kind of the the our criterion. It's like, this is the right way to do it. Versus if we didn't standardize one of the two measurements, uh, or if we didn't standardize both measurements, if if we looked at what the changes would be if they're unstandardized at pre and post. So mm -hmm. um, I won't go into all, all the results on that because we did this for every method, but essentially allowed us to nail down what context would cause an artificial increase in changes of so showing people say gained more lean mass than they actually gained and um, what what kind of lack of standardization would cause a blunting of changes where it might look like someone had no gain in lean mass when in fact they did um, there were mm. there were other components of the overfeeding study i can i can cut it off there because i could ramble on the overfeeding study for a while it was quite a um, beast of a project on the data collection. We had some very hairy days, and I give a lot of credit to my students for for managing all that that data collection. No, awesome work, awesome work. And um, are you are you familiar with the paper by Slater Slater at all as a energy surplus requirement? Man, so this coincides yeah. exactly with that. You know, um, if there isn't a progressive training stimulus inducing that training adaptation, you could eat 300 grams of protein a day and not build any muscle. And this coincides with the fact that. We don't understand the exact quote unquote cost for trying to build muscle. And it's going to vary based on your training level of advancement, the individual. And, you know, we don't know how much of a stimulus uh, is required or to what magnitude of surplus is required to build X amount of muscle. And then, you know, this study kind of demonstrates that having a more moderate rate of gain is a little bit more favorable for you know changes in uh, fat-free mass so awesome points man and if you guys aren't familiar with uh, his overfeeding study i'm pretty sure it's open access no yes it is yeah cool awesome awesome and so going into the overfeeding study we also touched on how you know you were uh you know conducting a study on the separate end of the spectrum so for some of the audience who's not familiar with some of your work could we dive into, you know, differences between intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding and the uh, pros and cons to both of those approaches? Yeah, so I will, I'll definitely answer that. And I'll give just a small amount of, of background on this. So when I first got it, got interested in intermittent fasting, it was early on in my, my PhD program. And um, I was working with, with a um, faculty member named Paul Labounty uh, at Baylor University. And he was previously the, the first author on the International Society of Sports Nutrition's position stand on meal frequency. Uh, that was back in, I think, 2007 when they published that. So um, one of their main conclusions, and this was limited by the fact that it, it wasn't in necessarily athletic populations, but one of their main conclusions was that, that higher meal frequencies weren't necessarily um, beneficial in terms of like boosting metabolism or stoking the metabolic fire 
or anything like that. And this was in this, these were in the days when they published this, where that was controversial, where you saw higher meal frequencies recommended for any goal. It's like, you want to lose weight, higher meal frequency. You want to gain muscle, higher meal frequency. You don't like the way your face looks in the mirror, higher meal frequency, just everything. So um, that was kind of a, that was a meaningful result. So I came in kind of after that and, you know, through discussions with him, we're like, okay, what about the other end of the spectrum? It's like, okay, three meals a day versus six meals a day, you know, not major differences. How low could you go? Like, what if you truncated the number of meals even further or shorten the feeding window? Surely there's some point at which this would be problematic. Um, so that was kind of the background. So kind of as a side project in my PhD program, I conducted um, what was one of the, the first studies on time-restricted feeding in combination with resistance training. Um, and I'll pause and define terms here just briefly. Um, there isn't universal consensus on this, uh, though I'm, I'm hoping I have something in the, in the works to hopefully kind of put forth more of a universal definition of these constructs with some other researchers in this field. Um, but how I would view intermittent fasting is a, a very broad term that applies to programs that focus on when you eat, not necessarily what you eat, and that also incorporate regular periods of fasting that are longer than a typical overnight fast. Um, of course, a typical overnight fast varies. We have population level data here in the United States showing that a lot of the population essentially eats from the, the second they wake up till the second they go to bed. So the median fasting time in the US has been estimated at like nine hours. Um, so essentially while people are getting ready for bed, in bed and getting out of bed, uh, and of course, that varies on the individual level. There are many people who skip breakfast and they don't think to myself, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting. They're just too busy, you know, too busy. They're on their way to work, whatever it is. Um, so intermittent fasting, very broad. Time-restricted eating would just be where on a daily basis, typically a daily basis, there's a certain number of hours in which you eat all your calories and outside that window, you don't eat calories. Obviously, that description would apply to everyone. So there is typically some aspect of intentionality where it's like, I'm intentionally eating in this eight hour period. Um, but again, some people might eat all their calories in say an eight hour period of time, uh, just because they happen to skip breakfast and they don't really snack late into the evening. Um, so it's important to recognize two people could follow the exact same eating schedule into one, they're viewing it as, oh, this is time restricted eating because I'm restricting myself. And the other, it's, it's just how they eat. Um, so we conducted that first study uh, in males looking at time-restricted eating and resistance training uh, around the same time at a, a conference I connected with uh, a great researcher, Antonio Paoli from Italy, who's been a, a collaborator and friend since then. Uh, he was conducting a similar time-restricted eating study, but in um, the, the individuals in my study were kind of recreationally trained. His individuals were very high level of training. Most of them identified themselves as natural bodybuilders. So um, much higher level experience, uh, very, very good body composition, very good kind of um, training age. Great demographic. Time. Yeah, great demographic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bet it was hard to get a, get a, you know, a good amount of uh, uh, people to participate because it's, it's very rare that you'll get a group of high level trained individuals that will let you completely take over their nutrition and training for weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, since it was in Italy, I wasn't boots on the ground for that. But I think their relationships with a number of specific gyms allowed them to just have, you know, kind of a numbers game, access to enough people that they could find those crazy few who are willing to let their program get messed with by someone who's wanting them to only eat, you know, eight hours a day. Um, so we had a couple initial studies there. Um, we've gone on to conduct a few more studies, mostly with resistance training. There was one we, we did in cyclists. Um, 
it's been, yeah, I guess there've been five or six studies now and it's been kind of a wild ride because this is not, this is all over the last, you know, five or six years, but the, the interest in this area, there's quite a bit of interest when we started, but it's just, um, continued to increase uh, dramatically. So uh, if I were to paint with broad strokes and give kind of some, some summaries, uh, in general, well, okay, let me start. We, we just threw a wrench into it recently because we just published actually a year-long continuation of that study uh, in Italy, as mentioning. So I'll ignore it for one second and give what our conclusions were, and then I'll update it with this year-long study. So our conclusions were that up to a couple months in both resistance-trained males and females, truncating the eating window down to at least about seven and a half hours a day, as long as you had similar calorie intake and sufficient protein intake, so often at 1.6 to 1.9 or even above grams per kilogram of body mass per day. Um, if those factors were met, so similar calories, similar protein, similar resistance training or say identical resistance training stimulus, uh, we did not see a compromise in um, lean mass accretion, uh, increases in muscle thickness, muscle performance, and so on. Uh, there were po several possible unique physiological benefits, um, not definitive, and it's a little hard when you're studying a generally healthy population it's not like studying a, a population where all their health markers are in a bad range and you implement some lifestyle change and everything gets better. You're dealing with people who are generally healthy to begin with. So, um, but nonetheless, there were some potential benefits as well as some questionable effects, such as a decrease in testosterone in um, the, the high-level uh, Italian resistance trainees I just mentioned. Um, but up to this point, that, that's kind of what we conclude. It's like you can at least maintain lean mass. We even saw an increase in lean mass in our study in resistance trained females. Um, if the proteins there and the calories are there down to seven and a half hours is probably okay. One of our early studies actually had a four hour eating window, only four days a week. And in that group, we saw maintenance of lean mass, but we actually saw a couple kilogram increase in lean mass in the control group that was eating throughout the day. Um, there were some caveats there, such as the, in that um, study, we didn't control protein intake as more of a free living study. So the time restricted eating group sort of self-selected a lower protein intake. Um, so there are a couple of factors, but at least some evidence to say, okay, maybe seven and a half, eight hours is okay for an eating window. Maybe down to four hours is too short. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that, that's kind of where I would say right now. I feel okay going down to eight hours for, for quite a few people, but probably not beyond that. Um, and even at the eight hours, a ton of context. I won't go into all the nuance and context, and you know, but, but tons of context there on, on who we're talking about. So kind of the wrench that got thrown in a little bit, and I wouldn't say a wrench, like the data are what they are, and we're excited to get them out there. But uh, with Antonio Paoli and his group, we recently published um, a 12-month study. So we had the initial two-month study uh, in these resistance-trained males in Italy. They were able to opt in to continue for another 10 months, um, resulting in that total uh, year-long trial. And uh, it was pretty interesting. A number of the short-term physiological changes we saw were maintained after a year, including the reduction in testosterone in IGF-1 in the time-restricted eating group. Uh, after the two-month study, we concluded, okay, over the course of two months, this didn't seem to be problematic. We saw similar maintenance of lean mass, and we actually saw a reduction in body fat in the time-restricted eating group, but not um, the control diet. Uh, however, after 12 months, there was actually a decrease in fat-free mass and the, the surrogate of muscle hypertrophy. It was, it was a muscle hypertrophy metric that was based essentially on like arm cross-sectional area, so kind of a, a field-type method for this. Um, but we saw, again, sustained suppression of testosterone, reduction of fat-free mass. This wasn't like they were wasting away, but the fat-free mass was a little bit lower than it was at baseline. Um, but we also saw maintenance of some of the health improvements. So 
Um, people on either side of the aisle, either the, the pro time restricted eating or the anti time restricted eating have something to latch onto. Uh, if you're against it, you're like, oh, look at this testosterone is still suppressed and they lost some fat free mass and uh, cross sectional area. Um, on the other side, they're like, okay, the magnitude of fat free mass loss is pretty small. And we saw some other health improvements um, that might be good for like long term, you know, health and wellness of the participants. But um, we were excited about that study. You know, there's some challenges in in a year long study, um, but we we're excited to get some of those data out there because almost every research study you read that's a couple months long, one of the limitations is this was a pretty short study and we probably need some longer term data. So that's kind of the overview. But if you want to dive into to any of that more, I, I'm happy to. No, great overview. Guys, if you're guys, girls, everybody listening, man, don't attach, don't attach yourself to a specific approach, okay? Just understand that everything works. It just depends on the context. Now, Grant, we love context over here. I got to tell you, I'm sorry to break it to you. So could we dive into some of the physiological benefits and downsides to time-restricted feeding? I know you stated just previously, um, you know, reductions in testosterone. Um, but, you know, we know that there's improvements in glucose, uh, glucose tolerance. And, um, you know, you could definitely, you can make an argument for anything, but, you know, you could always make an argument for optimizing digestion. A paper that you have is time-restricted feeding to coincide with our circadian rhythm and a lot of physiological processes run in a circadian type fashion, whether that be cognition or digestion or performance, yada, yada. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, so that's a that's definitely a a super hot area, uh, and the the general idea of alignment of nutrient intake with our inherent physiological processes. Uh, there's a good rationale there. There are definitely data showing, uh, like if the exact same meal is administered at different times of the day, say morning and night, that you'll have some different physiological responses. Um, so there is a rationale there. This that idea has actually stemmed an offshoot of time restricted eating called early time restricted eating, um, which is somewhat interesting because if you think about traditionally time restricted eating, how many people would implement it, it would sort of um, fall into the realm of what would be easiest behaviorally, which I think is really important. But it would often be maybe skipping breakfast, not eating till lunch. For some people, not eating till mid afternoon. But generally, you're eating through kind of the the late afternoon hours, evening, where you might have social meals, meals with families and family and so on. Uh, and then for some eating up kind of into the night, depending on how you define that when someone goes to bed and, and so on. Um, so some of that wouldn't actually be totally aligned with what we would traditionally view as optimal from a circadian rhythm standpoint. Uh, from a circadian rhythm standpoint, generally it's viewed that shifting more of the calories earlier in the day would be better. Um, but there's some context here we'll get into. So for example, if you're someone who tends to eat a lot of calories, say post-dinner, then even a pretty traditional time-restricted eating program, say stopping eating at 8 p.m., that could prevent some people from eating later into night where traditionally we view that as less aligned with circadian rhythms. Um, in contrast, it's, it's not as shifted in the favorable circadian rhythm direction or chrononutrition direction as this new variant, early time-restricted eating. So early time restricted eating, you essentially wake up, you eat breakfast. Um, breakfast is contentious. There's uh, quite a bit of cross-sectional data supporting it and limited like actual interventional data supporting breakfast, but still some evidence that um, there could be benefits of breakfast in some context. So early time restric restricted eating, you eat breakfast and you eat essentially till mid-afternoon, then you stop. 
So from a circadian perspective, and, and some of this has been demonstrated through some just early preliminary studies, uh, this is viewed as very favorable in terms of aligning nutrient intake with nutrient processing rhythms, digestion, and so on. Um, my biggest gripe about it is that I think behaviorally it'd be incredibly challenging. Um, for me personally, and I think for many people who maybe kind of report to a traditional job or just busy during the day, it's, it's not that hard. It's not hard to skip breakfast. It's not even torture for some people to skip lunch and like begin eating even later than that. I'm not advocating this. I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, however, if you talk about, it's like, okay, the time of day when you're, it's like, you're winding down, you're coming home, you have increased access to food, increased social eating opportunities, eating with your family, this and that, um, to not be eating that time of day. So say 3 PM onwards, you're not eating for most people behaviorally, I think it's really difficult. Maybe if you have like a whole group of people on that eating pattern that are living together, or if you just totally adapt your, um, lifestyle and mind to that, it could work for some people, but despite that nice physiological rationale of chrononutrition benefits. I just don't think it will be a very scalable strategy for most people uh, for the behavioral aspects. Uh, mm. So I want, I wandered there a little bit, but I guess point being some people view intermittent fasting broadly as, oh, this is really good for, you know, circadian rhythms and chrononutrition alignment. And I'd say there's context for some people it might actually be worse than a, a normal eating pattern for them. For other people it might be better, but it also depends on what type of program you consider. Um, my big thing would be behaviorally, is this something that you could actually adhere to long-term if you have this very kind of unusual eating schedule? Mm, beautiful context. Well said. And um, guys, it's also important to take into account that, you know, all this information is great, but everything is going to be, everything is going to come down to an individual level. So for one person, you know, uh, time-restricted feeding may exacerbate some potential issues with eating disorders. Everything is down to an individual level, but it's important to keep that context in mind. Now, with regards to, you know, fasting, I know you said uh, in that Italian study, uh, there were some reductions in uh, fat-free mass. So we could potentially, like I said, we can make an argument for anything, but based on our understanding of protein turnover and muscle protein synthesis, why could that potentially be detrimental if our goal is to maximize muscle gain? Yeah, so the kind of traditional, uh, and, and right, rightfully so, but kind of the traditional and current um, sports nutrition, uh, or say exercise nutrition dogma on this would be consuming, you know, bolus of protein that would maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which would be, you know, something in the realm of 0 0.25 to 0 0.4 grams per kilogram body mass, uh, or an absolute dose of say 20 to 40 grams. Uh, consuming that every three to five hours throughout the day. Um, if you kind of try to reconcile the individual doses and the total daily recommendations, you, you could come up with doses of like three to eight doses per day. But the general principle is most people would recommend kind of evenly spaced protein distribution. Um, that was one question we really had on the last study we did at Texas Tech with time-restricted eating. Uh, the control group, we, re we required them to eat breakfast um, so they were eating for about 13 hours a day as compared to that seven and a half. And we felt like that this was a decent way to, um, have kind of a real world look at this protein distribution. Like if all of this same amount of protein, all of this is shoved in seven and a half hours, uh, is that fine? Cause they're not going to like instantly digest it. They'll have some period where they're digesting, um, after that, that period of time. Uh, so again, over the course of those two months, we saw increase the similar uh, increases or equivalent increases in fat-free mass in both groups, similar increases in muscle thickness, all that. 
Um, but again, we don't know long term. And the, the one say we have is the one we were just discussing where long term, it may just be that it takes more than those two months for that to manifest. If we continued with our study at some point, the increase in fat free mass would have stopped. Maybe that would have stopped sooner and leveled off in the time restricted eating group as compared to the control group. We don't know for sure. Um, but yeah, essentially in the, the year long time restricted eating group that that group essentially settled at a lower body mass. They had both lower body fat and lower fat free mass. So it, it kind of be like, is that a, is that a trade you're willing to make? Maybe you, you have suboptimal, slightly suboptimal daily stimulation of muscle protein synthesis in terms of limiting those to a certain period of time, rather than I'm stimulating first thing in the morning till right before bed. Um, is that a trade you're willing to make given kind of the, the collective ev evidence? It's like, yeah, some people might trade a couple of kilos of fat-free mass for a little bit lower body fat. Um, other people would say like, no way, anything, like I'll take the extra fat, but, but do not take any of my fat-free mass. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'd say is that, yeah, based on muscle protein synthesis data, there would be an apparent detriment to many of the schedules used with, with intermittent fasting in general, and even time-restricted eating in particular. Um, but we just don't have a ton of long-term data other than, you know, the study I mentioned to support that yet. Mm. Mm, great points. Great points. And uh, everything is context dependent, guys. So for a general population person, it doesn't make that uh, probably doesn't matter all that much. Just get your total daily protein intake in and uh, make it convenient for you. Whereas for an athlete or physique competitor who is dieting or in contest prep, that may increase with regards to importance if your goal is maximal muscle retention. So thanks for that response. And um, with regards to some of the nuances of carbohydrate and fat metabolism, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why it may potentially be advantageous to utilize a strategy like time-restricted feeding for maximizing fat oxidation. Yeah, so we did in a couple of studies, including both the kind of two-month time point and 12-month time point for the, the study we've been talking about, um, did see a little bit of a shift towards preference for fat oxidation um, at rest. Uh, of course, as you as you continue a prolonged period of fast, so like say from a short overnight fast, like eight-hour overnight fast, up to 12 hours and then 16 hours where this fast would end in this case, um, you do see a, a consistent, reliable shift from um, shift towards a fat preference. And of course, it's, it's relative a little bit to the individual where they were at on that that ratio of, say, carbohydrate and fat oxidation to start. But generally across individuals, you will see that shift towards um, fat oxidation. It's a little hard to put too much weight into it. There are there are data supporting or associating a preference for lipid oxidation with a variety of health markers, um, particularly in like an active athletic exercising population. I, I wouldn't be concerned about it as like the main um, outcome. I think it's, it's interesting and can provide a look at, at, it can provide some information for further research. We published a review recently that dove into the nitty gritty on this a lot. Um, the first author is, is Stratton is the last name. He's a, one of my doctoral candidates in, in the lab, but we really dove into this idea of the duration of fasting and how do we have these shifts and say, carbohydrate and lipid metabolism. And there are certain periods where you see more notable shifts. So for example, in a lot of literature, uh, and this is a little bit longer fast than we've been talking about, but from like 18 to 24 hours of fasting, you see a pretty dramatic change in um, lipid and carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, in, in many cases, you'll see changes in resting energy expenditure, um, which is kind of debated a long-term at just like overnight rested energy expenditure. You don't see like a benefit 
of intermittent fasting, but during an acute period of fasting, at least in some people and in some studies, there's a mild sympathetic response that can temporarily increase resting energy expenditure. Um, so, I mean, a lot of things going on here. It's not, it's not an area we do a ton with. So we use indirect calorimetry as a technique. So we do look at resting metabolism in the respiratory quotient. So we are looking at generally the oxidation of lipids and carbohydrates, but uh, we don't personally in my lab dive into a ton on the, the mechanisms and full implications um, of those acute changes. Mm, great points, great points. And um, to round off this discussion, you know, we always, or me personally, I always have people asking me, oh, what's the best way to calculate my calories? And generally, you know, we could come up with these calculations, Mifflin, St. Gior equation, uh, the list goes on. Um, however, the best means for, and of course, we could go to the extent of trying to quantify our BMR, but for most people, the non-invasive method is simply just going to be weighing yourself in conjunction to tracking your nutrition and being adherent with that and adjusting along the way based on your goal, your desired rate of loss or gain and your biofeedback response. So stress, soreness, fatigue, how well training performance or recovery processes are. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there and we could round off this discussion. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And, um, We've done some work with prediction equations and RMR prediction equations and even proposed some new ones for off-season physique athletes. And, you know, it's interesting to dive into, but you're right. The take-home uh, and kind of getting back to what we did in overfeeding study, we're like, you know, we could do all these calculations or we could say, you know, we're going to trust energy balance principles and look at body mass and see how body mass changes. Uh, you're right. If, if someone's tracking, even if someone's tracking and they're tracking wrong, but they're tracking wrong consistently and you have that paired with body mass, you'll know what you need to know. So even if, if you have someone who's like consistently tracking and you're like, huh, I feel like at that intake, you should probably be losing body mass and they're maintaining, you're like, okay, based on the way they do this, if they're doing this consistently, this is by this method, their weight maintenance calories. Um, so we can adjust up or down correspondingly for a body mass goal. Uh, and I think you're totally right because tracking the body mass and ideally composition too, but body mass and composition changes, um, that allows you to not have to worry about all the adaptive responses as much. So if you cut someone's calories some and that was sufficient for body mass loss, at some point we know there are these mechanisms at play which will kind of resist the weight change. So at some point they may level out, um, but you'll have that information because you're like, okay, now I've seen this point, like we lost this first kilo and now we're maintaining here despite the same nutrition. That gives you the take home of what you need. So no, I agree completely with you in terms of the, the practical take home. So if you have body mass and then ideally even some simple methods like circumferences or just raw skin fold thicknesses uh, or something where you can really verify you're like, okay, not only is body mass leveled off, but our body comp is holding steady at these thicknesses and these circumferences and so on. Um, that, that to me really gives you all the information you need in a, a practical sense. Mm, great summary. Great summary. And guys, I want you to, uh, guys, girls, I want you to pay attention to what he said. He said there are adaptive mechanisms that will make you slightly resistant to, you know, your fat loss efforts. And it's important to be objective of what is called metabolic and hormonal adaptations. It sounds so scary. Oh my God. But it's a natural survival mechanism. There's no reason to be scared about it. And unfortunately, we're not going to cram this entire discussion of intermittent energy restriction in five minutes. So what I'm going to have you do, or what I'm going to do is I'm going to reference you 
to my episode with Dr. Campbell. If you are someone who's trying to maximize their fat loss efforts, I definitely recommend you go give that episode a listen. He's doing a lot of great work um, at his lab at USF. And uh, so is Grant. You know, I want to thank you again for coming on. And uh, do you have any interesting studies coming out in the near future? Any projects you'd uh, want the audience to stay on the lookout for? Yeah, so we have quite a few. Um, I'll mention one because I think you're a Legion Athletics fan or partner. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have a, a study uh, under a second round of review that's actually looking at exercise performance outcomes with both the caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions of Pulse uh, in addition to placebo. So that's a study we're excited about, uh, the Pulse pre-workout uh, that we're excited about that should be coming out soon. Um, we have a, a number of other ongoing um, studies. I won't dive into all of them, but I'll, I'll mention one that is relevant to some of our discussion today. Um, we are looking at, uh, in a controlled setting where we're providing all the meals for these testing days, looking at whether the um, inclusion or omission of breakfast affects afternoon resistance exercise performance with kind of a heavy squat bench deadlift protocol. Um, there have been several studies showing a detriment of breakfast omission, even when those calories are made up for at lunch on afternoon and evening, evening endurance performance. Um, but uh, a doctoral candidate in the lab, Matthew Stratton, and myself have, have sort of long wondered what this would look like on the resistance exercise side. So we have a study where uh, in two different conditions, participants are coming in and we're providing them with the exact same foods, either split amongst breakfast and lunch, and then a mid-afternoon resistance exercise protocol, or solely provided as lunch, where they skip breakfast and make up for the calories at lunch and then have the afternoon training. Um, so for that, we're curious to see if there is um, if there are performance impacts. And we're also kind of extending the previous research because we're looking at this uh, not only both in males and females, but also in habitual breakfast consumers and skippers, because most of the research to date has used habitual breakfast consumers, which could weight things towards the importance of breakfast. So we're trying to give this kind of a fair look from both directions. Um, so that's one study we have ongoing that I think would be, you know, relevant to maybe some of the things we've talked about here, but on a more acute scale of, you know, how, how might this be impacting your training, even if it's in the non-fasted mm. state. Mm. Great talks. Great talks. Thanks so much for your time, man. Guys, go give Grant a follow on Instagram. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to give us a screenshot and tag on social media. I never ask for things, but do it just for this. How about that ingredient profile for Pulse though? I'm excited to see, uh, see the outcomes of that study. And once again, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Talk soon, guys. Bye-bye.